Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, book 15, chapter 7. Why did they tear down the wall just to move it instead of setting their fires close to the wall to begin with? How do you think their decision-making is affected in these conditions? Good question. I hadn't thought of that. Kara Kikas says, though, rather than respond to the discussion prompt, I want to respond to the question asked in the Medium article. How easy would it be for them to revolt Manor Farm style against the sometimes cruel rule of their superiors, and yet they don't? Why? What I see in this scene feels like in-group, out-group dynamics. I think the common soldiers feel familiar and commonality with other common soldiers they identify with and wish to gel with them the officers on the other hand have their own grouping their own norms and ways of being i think these differences are artificial they come to each from circumstance and custom you are not something fundamental about the character of either sorry and are not something fundamental about the character of either however once the expectation is established once we all feel like we know what part we have to play moving from your role is hard you would have to fight against the real or perceived peer pressure you would have to risk losing your belonging it takes a truly exceptional person or truly exceptional circumstances to shake out the status quo but here despite their discomfort we see them acting out their roles as they think they must be played yeah once people connect on a human level it's difficult to remove that and um Maybe that's something like what we're seeing for the superiors who haven't connected on that on that human level. It's easy for them to pass down orders like these, but something like that. Does that make sense? I don't know. Twisted every way says, I have no idea why they moved the whole hut, but they sounded like a merry bunch, so I'm going to go with they were drunk. <laughs> and four lost souls in a bowl says, I feel like in Russia that's never a bad guess. That could be why. Let's read chapter 8. It's a bit of a long one, so I'm going to dive in. One would have thought that under the almost incredibly wretched conditions the Russian soldiers were in at that time, lacking warm boots and sheepskin coats, without a roof over their heads in the snow, with 18 degrees of frost and without even full rations, the commissariat did not always keep up with the troops, they would have presented a very sad and depressing spectacle. On the contrary, the army had never, under the best material conditions, presented a more cheerful and animated aspect. This was because all who had begun to grow depressed or who lost strength were sifted out of the army day by day. All the physically or morally weak had long since been left behind and only the, fl- the flower of the army physically and mentally remained. More men collected behind the waddle fence of the 8th Company than anywhere else. Two sergeants major were sitting with them and their campfire blazing brighter than others. For leave to sit by their waddle they demanded contributions of fuel. A. Makiv. What has become of you, you son of a bitch? Are you lost or have the wolves eaten you? Fetch some more wood, shouted a red-haired and red-faced man, screwing up his eyes and blinking because of the smoke, but not moving back from the fire. And you, Jackdaw, go and fetch some wood, said he to the other soldier. The red-haired man was neither a sergeant nor a corporal, but being robust, he ordered about the weaker than himself. The soldier they called Jackdaw, a thin fellow, with a sharp nose, rose obediently and was about to go, but at that instant there came into the light of the fire the slender, handsome figure of a young soldier carrying a load of wood. Bring it here, that's fine. They split up the wood, pressed it down on the fire, blew at it with their mouths, and fanned it with the skirts of their greatcoats, making the flames hiss and crackle. The men drew nearer and lit their pipes. The handsome young soldier who had brought the wood, setting his arms akimbo, began stamping his cold feet rapidly and deftly on the spot where he stood. 
Mother, the dew is cold but clear. It's well that I am a musketeer, he sang, pretending to hiccup after each syllable. Look out, your soles will fly off, shouted the red-haired man, noticing that the sole of the dancer's boot was hanging loose. What a fellow you are for dancing. The dancer stopped, pulled off the loose piece of leather and threw it on the fire. Right enough, friend, said he, and having sat down, took out his knapsack, a screw, a scrap of blue French cloth, and wrapped it around his foot. It's the... Steam that spoils them, he added, stretching out his feet towards the fire. They'll soon be issuing us new ones. They say that when we've finished hammering them, we're not. We're to receive double kits. And that son of a bitch Petrov has lagged behind after all, it seems, said one sergeant major. I've had an eye on him this long while, said another, while well, he's a poor sort of soldier. But in the third company they say nine men were missing yesterday. Yes, it's all very well, but when a man's feet are frozen, how can he walk? Eh, don't talk nonsense, said a sergeant major. Do you want to be doing the same, said an older soldier, turning reproachfully to the man who had spoken of frozen feet. Well, you know, said the sharp-nosed man, they called Jackdaw, in a squeaky and unsteady voice, raising himself at the other side of the fire. A plump man gets thin, but for a thin one it's death. Take me now, I've got no strength left, he added, with sudden resolution turning to the sergeant major. Tell them to send me to hospital, I'm aching all over. Anyway, I shan't be able to keep up. That'll do, that'll do, replied the sergeant major quietly. The soldier said no more, and talk went on. What a lot of these Frenchies were taken today, and the fact is that not one of them had what you might call real boots on, said a soldier starting a new theme. They were no more than make-believes. The Cossacks have taken their boots. They were clearing the hut for the colonel and carried them out. It was pitiful to see them boys put in the dancer. As they turned them over, one seemed still alive, and would you believe it, he jabbered something in their lingo. But they're a clean folk, lads, the first man went on. He has white, as white as birch bark, and some of them are such fine fellows, you might think they were nobles. Well, what do you think? They make soldiers of all classes here. But they don't understand our talk at all, said the dancer with a puzzled smile. I asked him whose subject he was, and he jabbered on his own way. A queer lot. But it's strange, friends, continued the man who had wondered at their whiteness. The peasants at Mosheysk were saying that when they began burying the dead, where the battle was, you know, while well, those dead had been lying there for nearly a month, and says the peasant, they lie as white as paper, clean, and not as much smell as a puff of powder smoke. Was it from the cold? asked someone. You're a clever fellow. From the cold, indeed. Why, it was hot. If it had been from the cold, ours would not have not rotted either. But, he says, go up to ours, and they are all rotten and maggoty. So, he says, we tie our faces up with kerchiefs and turn our heads away as we drag them off. We can hardly do it. But theirs, he says, are white as paper and not as such much smell as a whiff of gunpowder. All were silent. It must be from their food, says the sergeant major. They used to gobble the same food as the gentry. No one contradicted him. The peasant near most haste, where the battle was said, the men were all called up from ten villages around, and they carted for twenty days, and still didn't finish clear carting the dead away. And as for the wolves, he says, That was a real battle, said an old soldier. It's the only one worth remembering, but since that it's only been tormenting folk. And do you know, Daddy, the day before yesterday we ran at them, and my word, they didn't let us get near before they just threw down their muskets and went on their knees. Pardon, they say, that's only one case. They say Platov took Pallion himself twice, but he didn't know the right charm. He catches him and catches him, no good. 
He turns into a bird in his hands and flies away, and there's no way of killing him either. You're a first-class liar, Kisilev, when I come to look at you. Liar indeed, it's the real truth. If he fell into my hands when I'd caught him, I'd bury him in the ground with an aspen stake to fix him down. What a lot of men he's ruined. Well, anyway, we're going to end it. He won't come here again, remarked the old soldier, yawning. The conversation flagged and the soldiers began settling down to sleep. Look at the stars, it's wonderful how they shine. You would think the women had spread out their linen, said one of the men, gazing with admiration at the Milky Way. That's a sign of a good harvest next year. We shall want some more wood. You warm your back and your belly gets frozen, that's queer. Oh, Lord. What are you pushing for? Is the fire only for you? Look how he's sprawling. In the silence that ensured the snoring of those who had fallen asleep could be heard, others turned over and warmed themselves, now and again exchanging a few words. From a campfire a hundred paces off came the sound of a general merry laughter. Hark at them roaring there in the fifth company, said one of the soldiers, and what a lot of them there are. One of the men got up and went over to the fifth company. They're having such fun, said he, coming back. Two Frenchies have turned up. One's quite frozen, and the other's an awful swaggerer. He's singing songs. Oh, I'll go across and have a look. And several of the men went over to the fifth company. Oh, all right, there we go. There's a chapter for you. I really liked that chapter. A little snippet into what it's like to be out there in the wilderness, in the fight, sort of. All right, guys, thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.